This is Rugger Matrix America. Welcome to the show, everybody. This is Alex Goff from Golf Rugby Report, joined as always by Pat Clifton and Bruce McLean. And we're here talking about a lot of stuff that's just starting in the beginning of the new year. We've got uh, Eagles actually playing uh, 15s in February. Who knew? It's just sort of a new thing. And uh, lots of stuff to talk about with regard to professional rugby. Rugby Matrix America is brought to you by Eagle Impact Rugby Academy. Don't forget to check out them at eirarugby.org. And also check out news about them on Golf Rugby Report. Uh, Bruce, Pat, we're talking about this just after the USA – national team, men's national team, uh, kicked off the John Mitchell era with a 35-35 tie with an Argentina 15. That's what they call it, an Argentina 15. Uh, Non-cap game, but it's the first game of this new uh, ARC. What did we think? Um, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll kick it off by just saying I thought it was really fun to watch. It was a fun game to watch. It was enjoyable. Um, uh, I've got some audio a little bit later from John Mitchell about, uh, how they play, but, um, tell me what you thought. Well, I, I mean, it was a fun, uh, first off, I, I think I had some surprised. I'm surprised by how well they played, um, with so many debutantes and, um, inexperienced players in the side. I was pleasantly surprised to see how competitive they were. I thought they played a pretty fun, open um, brand of rugby, a little bit different than what we saw a few months ago in the World Cup. Um, and turns out the player pool is a little deeper than I would have guessed. Um, so I, I think the guys have cleared themselves well and played a pretty fun brand of rugby. Is Those are my initial takeaways. I thought they looked... I thought they looked pretty good. I thought the number eight was fantastic. I thought the, the hooker played very well. I thought that um, Fry ran with power. Bauman did a lot of dirty work. The second rows really impressed me, and I hadn't necessarily been high on them, and I thought they did a lot of good work. Um, Nguyenu was fantastic, and I thought Kruger was great. And I, you know, defense left something to be desired, but that was true on both teams. And I thought the referee was a disaster. I mean, the Argentinians scored two tries on pretty blatant forward passes. And uh, and I'm kind of tired of these referees who, you know, act like they got to be personalities or they're sanctimonious or they're, you know, over-officious jerks. And he, he was he was dreadful. And the, 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 new, the new act of... of some of these referees, these referee trained people who never played rugby before are, it's kind of a, it's kind of a blight on the game, to be honest with you. And I, and I think that, you know, you look at say a Nigel Owens, who's been doing it for 15 years or, and has hundreds of games under his belt and a couple of funny lines here and there, but for the most part, he just referees the game. And this guy was, he was very self-important. 
and he was poor, and that probably cost the U.S. the game. Well, I think I, I think it's interesting because my take on him was, I think that at some point we're going to talk about the scrummaging and how the Eagles were able to get multiple penalties in the scrum. And, uh, you know, I thought that was more a result. Not saying that the, the scrum wasn't fantastic. They didn't do good work. But I thought that's because he had a referee from a Tier 2 country who didn't just automatically think the team in the blue jersey was better than the team in the white jersey. So I, I think maybe the Eagles got a, a benefited a bit from this referee's, uh, you know, he's Canadian, from his inexperience, if you will, or his, uh, his you know, where he's from. I, I, I kind of have to agree on that one. It's Chris Asmus, by the way, from, from Canada. But uh, the, the idea that um, the same thing happened in the scrum, depending on uh, from one side or the other, and he blew it up as a, as a, a penalty consistently was good. What I didn't like was, you know, it's just it's just a little bit of a frustration for me. Is the, you know, the, the those malls that I mean, eventually they scored anyway, right? But they had two malls where. There's a professional foul from Argentina to try and stop it. Swim up the side and try and disrupt that ball. First one is a penalty. They go and they do it again. Same thing happens. And the players are saying, first of all, we think we scored. Where's the TMO? And there was no TMO. Players should have been told there's no TMO. But second of all is that um, they were asking for a card. And I think on the second penalty, they repeated offense on something serious like this on the try line. There's got to be a card quickly. And I know that the USA has suffered those kinds of yellow cards before. So that was a little bit frustrating. Um, I suppose in the end it didn't really matter uh, because the USA scored right after that. But um, those were coming to the code. I didn't actually see the forward passes. So it, it was hard I, I, to know. see. Bruce is right. At least, at least on okay. one of them was so blatantly obvious. And I think that was the last try. All right. And that's, um, that's that possibly also on your assistant uh, referees who are Phil Ackroyd and Kurt Weaver, both United States people, and you you know you know the big, my big complaint about USA officials when they officiate in international games is they're they're harder on the USA, and Weaver and Ackroyd have both been that way. Um, good enough referees, but I just wonder were, what were they thinking when uh, they had the option to call back a try. I can see them not doing it. So, and the best referee in America is two of them, are, and it depends on on what your take is. Um, Ricono and Leah Berard. She's fantastic. I, look, I'm not going to sit there and blame a referee or whatever. I just, I, I just thought that his demeanor was condescending, and he didn't have the right to be condescending. In my opinion, referees don't have the right to be condescending, and when they are. They should just be dropped from refereeing. Hey. Well, he's, he was in over his head. I, I don't know. In some of his responses, he, players were asking some stuff, and I felt like he was still gathering his thoughts. Um, I'm not you know, trying to give him a complete pass there. I think he was a bit in over his head. I, I don't know what his exact resume is, but I'd be willing to bet this was without a doubt the most high-profile game and the highest-level game he's ever refereed. So he just seemed like a bit of a deer in headlights to me. Well, that... He was the thing is four years ago. Yeah, he's been doing this since he was a kid. Okay, he's one of the referee trained people. They, and, and that's that's part of the problem is having non-playing referee trained people 
that don't really understand the culture of rugby and the and the goodness of the people who play, they're very self important. They which is a completely different demeanor than you get from, you know, a Ricono or, or a Kurt Weaver who played and or a or a Leah who played and you just you don't get that from them. And and a lot of the older referees who've been put out to pasture because they're over 30 years old, over 40 years old or something, and mistakenly put out to pasture, I'll tell you that, um, that they're, they don't have that demeanor. They don't have that chip on their shoulder that some of the younger or referee-trained referees have. And they, they have another perspective of that of a player and a respect for the game and a respect for the efforts of the players. Like a Greg Gilliam in New York doesn't act like you don't mess with him. He's tough as the day is long. Hey, he, I'd put him in a fight against 95% of rugby players anyway. But he, <laughs> but he doesn't – you don't mess with him, but he doesn't mess with you either. And Nick Ricono, you don't mess with him, but he doesn't mess with you either. No, uh, no That's a good thing. But some of these guys, they sit there and it's like, you know, they, they get all self-important. And the reality is a lot of them have no idea what they're doing. And when they, they don't practice, they don't go to any club practices and get better. Where's the best the best practice and get better? And this guy, he wasn't good. And, and he, the, the U.S. got some calls. There's no question about it. But this was he, – he affected the game and, and – and and he affected the tenor of the game, and it, it just wasn't good. And he's a joke. The point of uh, part part of the point of the way this is done in the America's Rugby Championship is that they want to have their own uh, the the countries involved supply the referees. Uh, it's an important part. It's something that they fought for. I think it's a good thing overall because how do you get um, referees from the USA or Canada or Chile uh, to get major international appointments, well, they need some international experience. Unfortunately, what's going to happen is we're going to see some, some pretty iffy games and some, some, some iffy calls on occasion. We saw that in the NA4 as well. We saw that in the, the pack rim 100 million years ago. Those of you listening who are uh, younger than me might not remember it, but uh, it'll, be, you know, it'll be good to see Kurt Weaver uh, Gets to do uh, Argentina, Chile, uh, so you know, and and Uruguay, Argentina. It's pretty pretty exciting. And I talked to him about that, and talked to him about, you know, are you, are you doing extra work to, to to look at what happens in the scrum, uh, which he said he was. But you know, I I feel like especially with the scrum being uh, such a an aspect of play that's so fraught with issues, referees should be part of that and should really. Uh, um, pack down at least once in their life and go and do that. Uh, I don't think they need to pack down. I, I actually, Kurt Weaver is a good scrum referee. And he, and I saw him recently give uh, a double yellow red to the AC who didn't have a particularly good scrum at the time against Old Blue. And, um, and legitimately so. And then also came over and was talking to the different players about some of the things that they were doing. He was correct, and he was, and he even tried to learn and packed in with them one-on-one and things like that. And so 
he's going to be fine because he's like him or dislike him. At least, at least he, at least he's not what you would call an overofficious jerk. And 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 maybe this other guy from Canada isn't on on a on on in a regular basis. And that'll be great. I, I agree that they should have these these types of of top referees being there. But I, I would I, I would like to see. You know, Weaver is fine, and I think that. I think Rakono and I think that Leah and I think those people should be involved. And I'm sure there's I, I love Greg Gilliam, but he's in his 40s, so he they don't yeah, he's, he's not considered a good referee because he played the league was 35. But may, may, as, may as well put him out to pasture and, and over well, 40. We it's know a that. real problem, Alex. I, I believe Berard is doing the uh, women's Six Nations at the moment. Well, which is great, and then, and that kind of thing needs to be done. More often. Uh, back to the game a little bit. Um, David Tamalau, your number eight. Uh, John Mitchell was actually very pleased with what he did. Said, you know, when he gets fit, uh, just imagine what he can do. And that was a kid who played on the high school All-Americans um, and then uh, went uh, on mission, went, went to play football in college, then went on a mission and then came back and finished uh, college playing football, playing defensive end, and then uh, uh, back to rugby. Played at Golden Gate, and uh, and now playing at Life West. So this is the sort of the journey we're going to see with a lot of players, especially like this uh, Mormon, you know, Church of uh, Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints, uh, Polynesian kids, don't have a lot of money, looking to try and uh, uh, pay for their education to play some rugby. You think at, at eighteen, nineteen, you know, this kid's could go somewhere, but where's he going to go? He ends up going to some place like uh, West Texas A and M, uh, and uh, to play football. And he's also going to go on mission. So he's 26, but he's really just getting started. And in, in rugby terms, he's a lot younger than that. Uh, but a big boy, very big, pretty athletic. Um, and I think we'll probably see a few more of those kinds of players drift back into the game over the next few years, it'll be pretty standard, I think, for us to have a, a kid 24, 25, 26 who is playing football and comes back to rugby. That's Sammy Manoa's story to some degree. Yeah, and, and somewhat similar players, um, f- for sure. Uh, and, and Brody Orth, here's a guy, uh, played high school rugby, um, was not really... He he wasn't on like the high school all Americans or U.S. U twenties or something like that, but he was talked about a lot. He's got a lot of height, um, and and he I, I think he sort of did like the Graham Harriman thing where he showed up, maybe not first choice, but has a few things going for for him. And then on the field, he just worked really really hard. Well, Brody Brody's a guy I've played against and I've known for years. He's from Kansas City. Um, Brody is a cop. He's a thirty two year old cop. Um, you could see him crying when the national anthem was sung. I mean, I'm pretty happy for that guy to be able to get the cap and, and get to play um, <clears throat> because he's wanted it for so many years, and he's been on the periphery and really kind of the outside of the periphery, I think, for a longer amount of time. You know, Tolkien brought him in and had a look at him at one point. He played at Pearl City when they were doing their thing. Um, so it's not like he's not been around, but he's also, he, he you know, did time doing the family thing too and kind of put rugby away for a while and then came back and wanted to make a push for the World Cup. So I'm happy that not only did he get in, but he acquitted himself well. I mean, if Trueville doesn't get, uh, you know, doesn't tear his Patel a tendon, 
Brody Orth probably hasn't uh, played for the Eagles yet because he was he was originally just supposed to be available for the last three games. So they pull him in, and and uh, you know the scrum lineout looks pretty great, and he was a part of that. So happy for a guy like him to get his first uh, his first international appearance at 32 and do pretty well. Yeah, you you're also looking. You talk about the lineouts. Uh, Joe Taufete comes in, plays some hooker. Um, you know, he the the knock on him was maybe that he wasn't an eighty minute guy, um, and he did not play eighty minutes, but he 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 played most of the game, and he hit some really clutch lineout throws, back to those uh, lineout and mall that that led to Todd Clever's uh, try. Uh, you know, that was that was pretty nice to see from somebody we really st- still weren't quite sure what we were going to get other than the ball carrier. I thought he was pretty good. I thought the fact that he threw straight, I mean, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of contest going on, and, and I don't think that – I thought the Argentinian set piece was, wasn't was up to snuff, and you, they were significantly smaller than the Americans, and they were significantly overmatched. And it, it was – you could tell that the that, that front five group was – they looked very young. They almost looked afraid. They were half the size of the Americans, which was – but the Americans also selected a big team, and that, that's a gamble you take in selecting a very big team without a tremendously strong defensive ten. And they could have really pounded that channel and then come around the and come around the corner using their forwards, and then and gotten themselves in, on a front foot where the U.S. team might have been a little bit slow getting around getting around the corner to be able to stop it. And, and early in the game, I think Moto made, a, um, Moto made a really good play from inside center where he had a crushing hit that stuffed a, a move there. And I think that that put the Argentinians into a different mindset. And then the, uh, I thought the Argentinian kicking game was poor. And, but I thought the American kicking game off of off of off of phase play, Bird kicked really well. And I thought they put them put the the Argentinians under pressure and put the Americans in the right end of the field in a lot of in a lot of situations. And in his first game, acquitted himself well doing that. I don't think I don't think he used his centers particularly well and I don't I thought Naguanya played fantastic, but I don't think it was due to what was going on in the back line. I think that's going to take a bit of time. You have had a, essentially a new eight, a new nine. You had a new eight, a new nine, a new ten, a new twelve, a new thirteen, or and then um, Scully probably is more of a wing than he is a fullback. He gets caught up in contact a little bit too much. And the Gwenya was really out of this world, and and well, the, isn't didn't uh, you're right? Nguenyo played great and not really into the pattern of the thing, apart from that one try, which was a, a set uh, a set eight nine uh, fourteen move. Really, really nice, and happy to see it uh, executed. But isn't that what you want from your veterans? Because it's such a young team or such an inexperienced team. Is the veteran says this is how we operate. And we're, you know, this is how we chase down a kick, and this is how we knock someone down. You know, knock them down like uh, like a homesick mole, right? Uh, as as Dallin Stanford would say. But um, we, we, I think, it's extremely important when we have so many not 
much capped players or uncapped players is somebody like Nguenya came in and was a leader by example, which I thought was great because I don't know if we've seen a lot of that. I thought that of, of the veterans, Nguenya was by, by far the best. Wasn't even close. Fry, Fry played very well. And uh, but as far as who won that game for that team, it was the rookies. Nguyen was Nguyen, but that that number eight was awesome. That hooker was awesome. The second rows, who really are you know Peterson is relatively new to the team, and and uh, and Orth they played tough, and Bauman who's even he went on the World Cup, but he's still been in and out and. He played tough. They, they, they were, I know the Cleveran and uh, Cleveran Dolan scored, but you can't always look at guys who score and say, that. I don't think Cleveran Dolan played as well as they should have as veteran players. I think they should have been getting their head buried in a lot more often than maybe they did. And, and then well, you have to see that who are your runners on that team. I mean, well, pretty obvious that you number eight your runner. Pretty obvious that your hooker is a runner, and Fry ran really well. So those are three guys that are runners, and and they should have been they should and, and and not that Todd and and Dolan can't run, but they should have been digging their heads in there and allowing Moto to get into the game and and other people to get into the game. And I think that we probably would have pumped a few more points on the board had that been the case. I think there was a little bit too much seagulling going on. And I, I don't think that there was enough work going on in defense where, like, they shouldn't have been able to do what they did on quick taps. Our experienced players should have been there to stuff all that crap. Quick taps were a problem. Uh, 138 caps in the starting forward pack for USA. Three of those guys had 119 of them. So, you, you know, the rest of it, like Greg Peterson, we think of him as experienced. He has 11 caps. It's you know, virtually nothing. Um, in the back line, it was even worse because uh, Nguyenia and Scully had 64 caps and the rest of the back line had two. So, uh, you know, they talk about that. Talk about the Argentina team. Um, who, who, what was this Argentina team? Uh, and, you know, should should it be should it detract from the fact that that was as good a, a result as they've had in this kind of matchup? Um, you know, in the old ARC when it was USA selects against Argentina Jaguars, Jaguars have won easily. When the USA has played Argentina, um, aside from a couple of close games, a good uh, twenty year, two years ago, it's really been Argentina all the way. Uh, this one was a tie. Um, should we detract from that to say that they this was not anywhere near the front line Argentina? Uh, I mean, you you certainly can't, and I'll let Pat answer in a second. You certainly can't compare teams that played Argentina test teams and compare this to that because that that's that's a complete joke. It, it, this was not an Argentina test team; it wasn't even close. It was a young team. They were. When you look at an Argentina test team, look at the opening game of the World Cup where Argentina played the All Blacks. That is an Argentina test team. They would have beat the shit out of us by 100 points. 
The only thing that would have stopped them from scoring is the clock. And that's it. So to, to think of that in any other way is absurd. That said, you can't take anything away from the team that we had. Argentina 15, they put out the team that they put out. We put out the team that we put out. We certainly weren't at quote-unquote full strength. It was the team we put out. And it should be, we should be very proud of the effort they put in. There are things to work on. There are things that went extremely well. And there's going to be things that there's, that they're going to have to fix prior to going into their next games. And they probably will fix them. They, they don't have unintelligent people running the program. They know exactly what they got to do. So it's going to be great. This was a good starting point. But to say that it's to, to compare anything to a test team in Argentina is absurd. Okay, it's, it's, but to the that, that's fine. No, it's, no, it's, it's st- nothing to do with a test team. St- stipulated, but um, should we just say, should we throw this result out because it's a lesser team? It's not even the Jaguars. Jaguars are their second, their second line group for the most part. Oh, we still, but this wasn't our first line group either. Right. We didn't have Wiles. We didn't have uh, Sam Noah. We didn't have Seamus Kelly. Whether or not you would have selected all these guys, I'm not saying, hey, look, but our number eight performed very well, and certain people performed very well. So you could sit and say whatever we want to say. Of course, this was a great performance. We tied in Argentina 15. Nobody, nobody, nobody in their right mind was saying that this result would have happened. So the result was better than what anyone expected. You, yeah, you Pat, Pat, well, let, let, Pat, let Pat jump in on this um, because, you know, I, I think you've got some thoughts on. But look, <clears throat> at the end of the day, you put out the team you put out, right? Sometimes Cal runs out a lesser team against Cal Poly and, you know, once every 10 years they lose to him. But that's Cal, Cal Poly. This is USA, Argentina, not the test match. I get all that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a, an American team put together by USA Rugby, and it's an Argentinian team put together by Argentina's Union. And uh, the Eagles have never tied or beaten an Argentina team. And they did uh, they tied this time and should have won the dang thing. So I think that it should be celebrated as a, as a very big result, a very positive result. I mean, you look at all the different incidentals, the fact that there were... You know, like you guys said, all the new players at nine, at ten, the whole back line was freaking new. You had a guy at second row who, you know, hasn't ever, he's 32 years old, never gotten a cap, who only pulled in because of injury. All sorts of things. Throw in the fact that your coach comes in late because of a, a family tragedy, and he, this is, you know, what they have a week with this team, uh, the whole new coaching staff. You throw all these things together, and it could have been, an unmitigated disaster. It wasn't. In fact, it was the opposite of that. It was the best result you ever had against a side like this. So I think it should be only celebrated and, and, and touted as a very big performance and uh, from top to bottom management group to the players and all that. Um, so I think it's great. I think the attendance is great. I think that should be celebrated. I mean, the attendance wasn't great. It's not what we've seen for Ireland and Scotland, but in a very short time, I don't remember the exact date, but this game hasn't been announced and Dickens haven't been on sale for all that long. So I, I thought about all things considered, it was a positive 
uh, it can only look that positively. All right. um, okay, I, 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 one I wanna, thing I say that. Go ahead. Sorry. sorry. Go ahead. Well, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to I'm going to change direction because uh, I don't I don't want to Bruce to get crazy about the attendance figures. I, um, I I do find it interesting. I, I had a look to see you know who who was this Argentina team, um, and and what I what I've come up with what I've what I've discovered I guess is that um, the the Argentina has their front line players. Uh, then they've got the Jaguars who play in uh, Super Rugby. Play in, uh, play in the Southern Hemisphere. And then they've got this Argentina team. Now, it, it, does that mean that these are the third level of players? Well, for the most part, probably true. But there is some crossover. So your, your, your 33 Rugby World Cup players for Argentina, 19 of those are playing with the next level, the Jaguars. So it's really only about 14 players um, that are only Pumas at the moment. Uh, one of those 33 is actually in the ARC now. Uh, and then of the 34 players that are named for the Jaguars, obviously 19 of those played in the, the Rugby World Cup, the same number, and eight of them are in the ARC. So what we've got is that you've got about um, 14 like top frontline guys in Argentina. Then you've got 19 who are in the second tier. They play both Pumas and Jaguars. Um, and then you've got about 15 uh, or so, not even, you've got like seven, seven players who are <clears throat> just Jaguars. They're, they're really in that second, that, that, that second tier team, we'll call that third tier. And then you've got your ARC players, which are either crossover ARC Jaguars or ARC only. So you see how it goes, it's like five tiers, but I'd call it like their second and a half team. Some guys with experience, one guy with uh, was with the World Cup team, and a bunch of a bunch of kids really. But what they do have, what Argentina does have, is a uh, a full time academy system. So this is a team that is being developed to be the Pumas. And you, if you write down the names, and you you um, you know you you look at some of the guys who are involved in this game. Uh, you're going to recognize those names uh, later on. You know, Tomas Cario scored two tries. He's probably going to be a Puma in a few years. You'll remember that. So, yeah, I remember that guy when I thought he was nobody. Um, all of that and and starting from nowhere, completely nowhere, to put this team on the field, pretty amazing. Do have some audio from John Mitchell when where he uh, I asked him before this assembly – what kind of team he was going to have, what kind of game they were going to play. And so this is John Mitchell from uh, just after he was named, in fact. Yeah, I have a, an attacking style um, and, a, and a mindset that will um, that the players will um, enjoy. Uh, it'll, it'll challenge a few. Um, but in saying that... Um, you know, it'll involve everyone as well, which so it doesn't rely on just um, you know world class players to to deliver at a at a particular time. It really, really, it's really down to teamwork, and but it's ultimately um, requires development of skills um, so that you can uh, optimize the space that you that, that you gain. 
and um, yeah, it, it requires run as well. So it'll require a, you know um, a, a good engine, um, and it'll require you know high tempo as well. That was uh, John Mitchell. I I, I kind of think we did see the beginnings of that, Pat. Um, with with a, a team who certainly had an attacking mindset, four tries, not bad. No, I agree. I, I thought they were very, uh, they played with more purpose and more pace um, and were a little more aggressive um, with ball in hand. And, and I think that, you know, after hearing that, it, his fingerprints are on this. Um, and maybe just lightly so because of the, the, the little amount of time. But um, you could tell that, that it was not the same plan Um used in November in the World Cup and used in October in the World Cup. So, um, so far, so good. And, you know, I'm reminded of uh, Julie McCoy. She, she made a statement to me not that long ago talking about you know, coaches only have so long with one group of players before the message gets stale. And I think that's actually pretty true. Um, and uh, whether it's because this new system is, is just downright brilliant or maybe just because it's Fresh and new, and, and something different than what they, you know, players have been hearing for the last four or five years. Um, they did seem to enjoy playing it, and uh, and you know, went for it. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it had anything to do with that. There was some great attacking plan that neither team played defense. That's what it had to do with. I mean, the defense was dreadful on both sides. And it's something that needs to be addressed because, you know, as someone who's maybe seen some of these players in, in different areas and been able to, to have a little bit of success, I would venture to say there's a, there's a, there, there are some soft white underbellies there. And, and I, the U.S. is going to have to address those. Because and then this wasn't the World Cup in, in in any way, shape, or form. This was a this was a very young team that they played, and it, and I don't know who was on the Argentina fifteen, but it was a great performance, and it was a fun game to watch. But to put it in at the level of a hardcore, all money on the line test. It, that's just not true. To say that that's you know the U.S. played Scotland, Scotland played England in a in a in a very tense battle this weekend. It, it, it wasn't like that. That wasn't the team. It, it, that that wasn't what the U.S. faced. The U.S. faced inexperienced kids. So we you can't look at it as you can't look at it as those two levels. You take it for what it's worth. It was a great first performance, and there were people who were young who played very well. There were people who were experienced who didn't play well enough, and they would have won, take away the referee and all that. They would have won had the experienced players played better. Well, is, is, there something, is there something that he said for mindset? You know the, the idea, uh, as, as Mitchell said, I, I have an attacking mindset. If, if all you're saying is... Uh, you know, let let's go for it. Let's run. Let let's run it at them, as opposed to let's be conservative. You know, p- p- a player's play reflects that to a certain extent. It's not a great attacking plan. It's just somebody walked in and said, "I want to take it to them." 
No, I, look, I think there's something to that, right? I mean, not not that there's a you know a rah rah speech or anything like that, but you know, <clears throat> people listen to certain types of music who warm me up for a game for a reason. Um, those rah rah speeches exist for a reason. They don't always work, but if you strike a chord with people and you get them believing in in what you're saying, you know, you use the same key buzzwords like Friday uses the words relentless and ruthless. Uses ruthless ruthless a lot. Um, that strikes a chord with your guys, and they go out there and they try to be ruthless. They try to personify um, what their coach, uh, who they're relating to, is saying. So this attacking mindset, attacking nature, and taking it onto them. If if you do it right, and 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 they're rec- receiving of it, yeah, it's going to work. And I I actually do think that's what we saw. I, I do. Yes, the bodies that they were running uh, at uh, were a little bit lighter and definitely younger than uh, than uh, they were in October, but. Um, they were going backwards quite a bit farther as well. So I, I think that, um, you know, and I, Blaine Scott went out of his way, I thought, in his after, you know, it was a very good uh, post-game speech for a Cal guy, right? He hasn't been at Cal for a while, so maybe he hasn't had those media trainings. But um, <laughs> he actually said something, and I thought he kind of went out of his way unsolicited just to talk about how prepared he thought they were and how it was a good lead-up to it. And, you know, on paper... The lead-up was scary, but um, he went out of his way to say it was a good lead-up, which says to me that um, the coaches put something out new and interesting for them to eat, and they gobbled it up. Sounds good. All right. Well, attacking mindset. You you can have an attacking mindset when you're better than the team. Bottom line is defense is more consistent, and if you're not better than the opposition team you're playing – you're going to have the attacking mindset until you're blue. They're going to knock you on your ass, and you're done. You, they'll, 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 they'll force you to make mistakes, and they'll capitalize on the mistakes, and that'll be it. The Carolina Panthers had an attacking mindset. It was an amazing attacking mindset. Took them to the record of 17-1 and one, or 16-1 and one, or whatever the hell they were. And 17-1, and one, they would have won two playoff games. 17 and 1. And then they ran up against the defense, decided, you know what? You're not going to be able to defend. You're not going to be able to attack. You got to play smart. Don't turn the ball over. Don't do stupid things. Don't beat yourself. They beat themselves and they lost. As Cam Newton says, keep me out of the end zone and I'll stop dancing. Well, they did. And that's what's going to happen. You can't have an attacking mindset. You got to, you're going to have an attacking mindset in defense. But if you think you're just going to run the ball around the field and do that kind of crap, we're going to be in for a long four years if that's going to be the mindset. We're going to be in for a really long four years if our fly half is going to stand 15 yards deep. Well, talking about – let's – Switch gears here. Uh, you're listening to Rugby Matrix America, brought to you by Eagle Impact Rugby Academy. And uh, if we want to talk about uh, football reference and uh, professional sports, and you know the the most watched professional sporting events and, and everything like that, let you know, let's have a look at the effort to professionalize rugby here in the United States. And uh, I'm curious to see what people have to think about, uh, have to say about it. A lot of people are asking me what I think. Um, I pretty much said the same thing every time, which is I've seen an awful lot of efforts 
come through that talk about it and nothing comes of it. So I'm just waiting to see what happens. Um, but we've, we've, we now are looking at a, a, a professional league that was supposed to have six teams, but I think now has five. Um, I'm not sure if they've officially announced all the cities, just about all the cities, haven't announced they've the coaches. Three. They've done they've they've done three on their website, and there's a fourth Denver, which has been sort of officially out there. Um, and uh, we hear we, some coaches get announced, things like that. What I'll go with you first, Pat, because actually I know what Bruce is going to say. So, uh, Pat, what do you think about this? Are you looking at this and thinking, boy, it looks like it's going to happen, or do you not like it? I'm just whatever you get from it. I think a lot of it's less than ideal. Um, I do actually have come around to the, uh, the school of thought that they are going to put guys on a field and play some games. I do think that's going to happen. So your quote-unquote first professional rugby is going to it's going to exist, I think. I think it's going to happen this spring. Um, I know that they're under, uh, there's a, a bit of a shot clock on their agreement. You know, they're licensing, or, or they're, I'm sorry, they're sanctioning agreement with USA Rugby that, that they do not get a product on the field, they lose it. Um, so they've got to get a product on the field this spring. I think they're going to do that, um, possibly to their detriment. I mean, look at where we are right now, you know, we're two months away or, or whatever, and we don't have a single ticket sold because we don't have a single player signed and we still don't have all the coaches signed and we don't even have all the cities announced. So um, I don't expect it to make any money um, the first year. In fact, I expect it to lose an incredible amount of money the first year. And, um, you know, does Doug Schoeninger, the, the one man with the, the, the wallet, uh, have the wherewithal to lose enough money um, before this thing starts turning around? Or will it turn around? I don't know. But I do think that they're going to get a, a product on the field at, at this point. Um, but again, that may be to their, to their detriment. I've got a lot of thoughts here, but I want to give you guys a chance to jump in and we can just roll. Well, well, Bruce, we were talking about, let's talk about the players. First of all, the idea that the players have mostly been picked, uh, there was supposed to be a series of, uh, combines. They had one, it was supposedly a, a fairly well run combine, but, um, at that point, the idea was most of the players were known and were identified. Uh, but in the players that you talk to, do, does anyone, or even just checking social media, do you see? Do, do we see on social media ever a, a player saying, um, "I'm going to be playing for Sacramento uh, this spring"? They have no idea. No, no. They, and they, Bruce. They, they, I, well, they, and Bruce, you were Sorry. saying that. Oh yeah, Bruce, you were saying the same thing. You're talking to people. Nobody hears anything. Yeah, and and I probably don't have as great a connections at the moment as Pat. So I mean, if he says they have no idea, I don't know anyone who does. The fact is, it's it's very difficult to make money, and and I'm not even. Let's take everything for what it's worth. There's, there's five teams, which means they have four home games. You have 30 guys, medical staff, medical insurance, payroll taxes, venue rentals, workout facilities, practice facilities, 
travel, probably some housing issues, other things, and marquee players. Um, Mills Muliaina was a name that was thrown to me, and Bergamasco from Italy was another name. So they're not coming cheap. So you're looking at you can say that you're looking at a million, million to two million. Let's just say a million per team, and just say it's a million dollar cost. And then that's on the cheap. That's doing it, you know. That's that's doing it with, uh, you know, Walmart. You know, you're going into your ghetto shopping mall. You know, your shopping store in the ghetto, the dollar store, and that that'll that's going to get you your your your, you know, that's that's the level that you're going to be at in terms of your professionalism, and that doesn't. So a million dollars a team. The dollar store is where I get my rucking pads, by the way. Well, it doesn't mean talking about everything else that you do. <laughs> dollar store level, and you know, and sometimes it's and and that doesn't, and maybe it isn't, and 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 if it isn't, then it's two or three million dollars a team, which then you're looking at eighteen, uh, fifteen million dollars, ten million to fifteen million dollars, which means that in in four games, say you have to make a million dollars back. That's two hundred fifty thousand a game, or twenty five dollars a ticket profit for ten thousand people, just to break even. So, yeah, you know, we we, we talked about so you run you run the numbers, you try to cut it back. It basically, looks like as you said, a million dollars uh, a team. Uh, we talked about it a, a while back. Came up with six million dollars, which. Um, that's your cost. So, so here's the thing. Six million bucks to make your six million bucks back on your 20 games, just 20 games, remember? So you need 5,000 people per game at 60 bucks a ticket, which isn't going to happen. Um, if you average like 1,000 people per game, which... You know, if I'm running a, 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 a from the ground up fringe sport pro league, I'd be pretty happy with a thousand people a game. That's three hundred dollars a ticket. Pat, I mean, what do you think? What do you think out there in flyover country, whatever it is you people do in between barbecue dinners? Pat, I mean, uh, is is a club going to get that? I mean, you, you've you've watched the growth of of uh, sporting KC. Fuck. You've watched the growth of the soccer team in, in Kansas City, things like that. Um, you know, I, I just can't imagine that somebody's going to be averaging 1,000, even 2,000 uh, people a, a game. No, I, I can't either. I mean, look, there's no way year one it makes money. You just hope that they don't lose. If you're, you know, you just hope they don't lose so much money that they bail out, you know, Early, like here's what I know about some of the contract stuff, right? So the tier one guys, so our Eagles, the Eagles are going to play that are looking at thirty five thousand dollars a year. They're going to be full time contracts. Tier two, I don't know the exact amount, but they're also supposed to be on full time. They pay full time employees, and then they have these guys that are going to pay a match fee. They're the tier three guys, and they'll work on a ten ninety nine. The other guys will work on a W two as, as actual employee. They would be paid out over the course of twelve months. So my concern, if I'm a player, is I go into this thing that has had a zero ticket sold, zero marketing done, 
doesn't have team names, right? I go into this thing that looks like it has, you know, if they're lucky, a chance to get three or four hundred people a game, people a game, right? And that's just probably counting, you know, two and a half relatives per player involved in the game itself, right? So uh, if I'm them, I'm I'm looking at okay. Once I get done with my my season here, they only need me for four months. So maybe my paychecks at the end of those four months stop coming because it's not like they get thirty five thousand within the window of the season. They get thirty five thousand over the course of twelve months. They be paid a monthly salary, which, which means which means that what they're hoping to do is complete the season. Make it happen. Turn around and go back to some sponsors and some other things and say, "Look, there should be some money behind this. You should go because we we got however many uh, people coming to see and and you know it was it was seven hundred fifty people per game. So um, you know that was fifteen thousand people and and you know just something and and they come back and so they're able to sell basically pay those people perhaps on on future business. And so they're borrowing from 2017 to pay 2016. But you're absolutely right. I would be too. Are they going to pay me? Yeah. Are they going to pay me on time? Yeah. That's the biggest problem, I think, with this whole model, right? Like, yes, they have Steve Lewis and and all those well-meaning people. They have their their teams, I'm sure, lined out. Well, Keeler, I'm sure they've all figured out, oh, we've got this many scrum hats. These are the ones we have. This is where they're going to go. And there's been some communication, you know, last week some emails were exchanged out to people in the quote-unquote player pool letting them know that, you know, in a couple weeks, well, I guess it'd be probably next week, um, they're going to have all the cities announced and all the coaches announced and then, you know, giving them the date in March that everybody's going to be asked to report for the preseason stuff. So there's a little bit of, tiny bit of information trickled out to the quote-unquote player pool. But, they asked for these players' availability months ago. You don't think that there's a possibility that their availabilities change? Um, within those three months, of course it has. Um, you know, so a guy that said he was available in October, well, may, he may be more skeptical now, and now all of a sudden he's not available. So maybe the player pool of 100 domestic players they thought they had, really now there's only 60 that are still game to go. You know, but I text my buddies on Tuesday, hey, you go grab some beers on Saturday, uh, and and seven of them say yes. Well, by the time you roll around to Friday, uh, well, maybe it's just me and one guy going out to get beers. I could see that happening, with this. Um, especially as little money as they're going to pay. Um, so you know, it's interesting, and and and, and where they're getting their, you know, where the, the teams are actually based as well. Uh, you know, are they going to be able to find enough people to go to Ohio, where I believe the fifth team is going to be announced? Um, you know, Tiger Rugby doesn't have that many people in camp here that can play pro rugby. So who's all dropping their uh, dropping their current jobs to go make thirty five thousand dollars? They hold well, that, a year and, in Ohio. That's, that's something that's, that several people have mentioned to me, and Bruce, you talked to me about that. Is the whole idea of actually moving to take a pro rugby job that is essentially sight unseen? Kind of scary. And if you don't move, where are you going to get your four month lease? You know, as somebody who's rented uh, and continues to rent, uh, you know, those month-to-month and four-month leases, uh, you know, they're not exactly just out there on trees for you to go find. Um, so who's going to sign a 12-month lease uh, when they only want to live there for four months? I mean, there's, I, I, the, the team, people running the league may think they know who their players are, 
But until those players arrive in that city, they have no clue who their players are just yet. Well, that's just life is with a rugby club, right? Exactly. You know, right. Yeah, you know, is is, I, is he going to show? Is he going to show at the airport? That's yeah. that's probably the better the better analogy than you know my texting my friends for beers. I mean, how many times is you know, who's available Saturday? And then that list shrinks by the time. The and then then, leaves, then you, know? you get the answer. Oh no, yeah, no, I had to work. Right, right. You know, it's like it was somebody had to, I had to fill in. I got overtime on the weekend. Uh, I do think that they're going to get it. I do think they're going to have a product. Um, I do think the product will be substandard. I do think that the uh, attendance will be paltry. And I just can't imagine that this guy, Doug, who, you know, I hope he's got $15 million to lose or whatever it is you guys just projected. Um, but I just can't imagine he does. Uh, and and to turn around and say, all right, I've lost 15. Let's rock up to next year, and I'm prepared to, you know, at worst case, lose 15 more. I just don't see it. Um, that said, failed leagues uh, often uh, come before successful leagues. So, professional soccer had 30, 40 years of failed professional leagues before they finally got it right. How many, Amer- you know, American football leagues have failed? Um, baseball, and you look at you go back and look at the, the way that before MLB was the king of everything. There are all these sorts of different leagues. Um, so failing yeah, is the part Ameri- of the problem. You, when the American Association went on for five years and uh, and and lost money and and fell apart because of because of gambling, actually. But uh, um, you know that kind of stuff happens for sure. But the question is today. You no, know, it used to be it wasn't that hard to to run a league and how much you're going to pay and the the taxes and the, and renting stadiums and things like that and the expectations weren't that high. Um, if you can get a stadium for free, that's going to send uh, save you an awful lot of money. Um, prorating your player costs out through the rest of the year will at least delay some stuff. Um, travel costs, well, that's going to that's pretty fixed, even if you have a situation where uh, you know a team in Bay Area can drive to Sacramento. Well, okay, fine, but uh, you know that that's generally not going to make any difference. The, the The big problem is to me most most of those costs are fixed anyway over a season, and you're playing four home games and four away games. And if you look at some place like and brought up the Premiership in England, um, and there's a reason to bring that up, uh, they play 22 total games in their league, plus uh, cup games, plus European Cup games, plus a few extra little friendlies and stuff like that, because they have to. There. Last year, 2014-2015, the English Premiership averaged 12,461 uh, people per game. And, and, and you know, that included the doubleheader at Twickenham, which was counted twice because 40-odd thousand people show up to see two games. Both of those games get credit for that stuff. But, you know, 12,000 is pretty great for – but wait, this is for one of the top professional leagues in the world, and they're averaging only 12,000 12, people. This pro league, the way it it works out, for them to make their $6 million, they're going to need that. They're going to need that $12,000. If they they get $12,461, 
that means that they can make make back their money uh, with a twenty five dollar ticket. But they're not going to get twelve thousand people to pay twenty five dollars to go see rugby in the United States, are they? No, they're certainly not. That's not going to happen. Number one, yeah. What their threshold is, and nobody goes into business. Exp- I mean, nobody with any business sense goes into a business, especially one like this, where you're there's zero proof of concept, expecting to make money their first year and never have the, the chance of losing money. Um, so surely. Doug knows he's going to lose some money. Um, how much money is he prepared to lose and how much money will he be okay with um, is the real question. Um, and, and we'll see how that compares to how much money he actually does lose. It, it's not a matter of whether or not someone's going in looking to lose or not lose. It's a matter of going in saying that on the low end, you have $6 million costs. On the high end, $15 million costs. And your revenues maximum, be lucky to get a million. And how long are you willing to sustain that? You could say, first off, England has a geographic footprint that's very small. They have a culture that, while it's a mainly a soccer culture, it does have a rugby culture. And you have London, which is the biggest city in England, hosts several of the teams and we don't have a major city hosting anything uh, really I mean when I say major you say LA, Chicago, New York and they're not hosting anything so we, we're really going to struggle to get fans period you look at saying like a Cal Berkeley game, which is, people care about Cal Berkeley. People will go and they'll go to the games and they want to see the games. They're invested in the school. They're invested in the rugby program. They love it. They want to be part of it. They want to be there, tailgate, hang out, see their friends and do things. They get 1,500 people, 3,000 to 2,500 to a big game. Same with St. Mary's. Same with BYU. And they're charging... You know, students go for free or three or five dollars and everybody else pays ten bucks or something like that. And and these are teams that have, have massive, massive histories. And people who care. The New York AC, I mean, there were times when you know, we had Mike Petrie, Brian Doyle, Louis Stanfield, um, James Hader played in the Heineken Cup semifinal, was a barbarian, was a Luke Milton was captain of Australia Sevens, uh, played against Belmont Shore. Rob Laird played for the Barbarians. Gavin Hickey played for uh, – Rob Laird played for the Holocons. Gavin Hickey played for Leicester. Um, Grant Wells played for the Waratahs, was in the Wallaby training squad. Um, Henry Bloomfield and um, uh, who was the second row? Greg Alley and, and, and Hamill and Lakomskis and, and – Telelewasuasu and Nate. These guys all had like legitimate professional careers, and there was legitimate eagles all over the place. Sinapati Uigalele, remember him? Big and, wing, that guy, scary guy. That nobody went to the games. They they had some people go. The most I've ever seen at an NYAC game was in Van Cortlandt Park in the semifinal against Old Blue in 2005. There was about 1,000 people there. 
it was free. And beer was free and parking was ample and it was easy to get. And you just stood on the sidelines. And I was, that was the biggest game I've ever seen that wasn't a national final. And the big national finals of <clears throat> the one in, in Denver, there was a small ticket price, but there was also six or seven other U.S. national championship games when we played Belmont. There was a... Um, it was an international game when we played uh, when we played against Belmont in two thousand five. Well, the That's, only the only barometer you should really need is look at the national finals that Glendale has played in at Glendale. They have their own stadium. <laughs> they have a they have actual infrastructure. And if Glendale playing for a national championship in Glendale, where there are rugby town banners all over the area, can't even get. 5,000 a game, how the hell is the Sacramento, whatchamacallit's going to get it? Well, and, I, and I totally agree with that. And the only other times, like the San Francisco when it was a home final for them and they actually charged people to go, they might actually made money. But they probably had 2,500 people, maybe it was 3,000. And 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 it and it puted sound when we played there and there were five Fijian national team players and 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 and, and four American national team players, and we had a potpourri of Americans and and other internationals there, and it was free. I got I got to say that is not a nice smelling potpourri. But it was it was <laughs> the thing is what I'm saying is it was, it was free, and and these people and, and I and I get your joke. It wasn't free. <laughs> quit your day job. Um, <clears throat> the uh, but as. That's what I'm saying is that these things were free and nobody went. And, or a limited amount of people went. If, if somebody would have charged them 50 bucks so that they were going to make 25, we would have had, you know, both teams, the referees and the ducks. And that would have been about it. Nobody would go. And then add in bad weather. Suppose it rains. It's zero chance having people in California, especially. Well, suppose it rains anywhere. Yeah, well, California's the worst about that. But uh, no, it, it that's that's the big thing is we, we, the the business model, scary business model. Um, could could we see some great rugby uh, played there? Uh, and, and would it be nice to see some players able to devote more time to developing themselves as players and make that level better? Certainly, but the word pro, the word professional, is so fraught because does that mean you're you're paid a match fee of uh, seventy five bucks and uh, you know off you go, or are you paid a million dollars? Most oh, people think about the million dollars, but you know that's very very few, especially in rugby. Whatever it is, USA Rugby got in bed with this. So USA Rugby and Alex Magleby and Nigel Melville. And then they, they have said that this is this is what they're doing. So Mitchell, Melville, and Mags, and so they're they're gonna make this work. That's that they they have now signed on to the fact that they're gonna make this work. And if it fails, they've basically been very hostile to everybody who has been 
who has tried to do the right thing in terms of rugby. They were hostile to the Varsity Cup. They're hostile to the ACRC. They're hostile to the CRC. They're hostile to USA Sevens. They're hostile. They basically had, they sold 13 months of not having the Eagles together to have a, a game with the All Blacks. And said, you know, they so they took away 13 months of right. together time. So they, they're hostile to this. They've now signed on to this thing. If it fails, they really have to accept 100% responsibility and probably all should resign. They won't. Well, no, but they should. They, I'm just saying that they, 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 they bought into this. And, you know, Steve Lewis has, has done a lot of work to make this happen. And they've got Paul Holmes coaching in Columbus. They've got Ray Egan coaching down in San Diego. Paul Keeler in California, Luke Gross in California, and Sean O'Leary in Denver. So they have everybody set. They're all good people. These are good American rugby people who have now put themselves, went to USA Rugby, asked to work with them in a partnership, have been agreed to work with them in a partnership. USA Rugby owes it to those good rugby people to make this work. And if it fails, I'm blaming USA Rugby. I'm not blaming good rugby people. I will 100% blame USA Rugby, and that is exactly... I disagree. I'm sorry. I, look, I 100% disagree. At the end of the day, Doug Schoeninger is the man who's culpable here. USA Rugby sold him a sanctioning fee and said, yes, we'll help facilitate players, because ultimately pro rugby is what's good. Now, am I going to sit here and say that it was a good idea for... Uh, Nigel Melville, who made the decision, not John Mitchell, for Christ's sake, not Alex Magleby, who made the decision to, to agree to the sanctioning fee with, with pro rugby. Uh, I'm not saying that was the best business decision. There's clearly an argument. All right? But if you're not in the way, that Melville has done time and time again. He's taken money from Bill Payson twice, who's done nothing with that fee. But hundreds of thousands of dollars have come into USA Rugby's coffers. Um, and seemingly no damage has been done. Damage can be done here. But if Sean O'Leary gets dicked around, if any of these guys get dicked around, whether it's Paul Keeler or Paul Holmes, that's on them. Right? They, uh, they saw this. They, they, if they haven't been able to see this coming and see what a train wreck it's going to be all along, it's because they chose to put the blinders on. It's on them if they quit another job or put anything on the line to risk for this pro rugby. And if they didn't see the risk coming, then they need to pull their head out of the sand. It's not up to Alex Magleby and John Mitchell or even Nigel Melville to protect them. It's up to I them wasn't to saying, do it. I'm sorry, and, sorry, the person who is a, and the person who's culpable here ultimately is Doug Schoeninger. I, I would want to pick a villain out of there. If this thing doesn't work and people get dicked over, I don't think it's fair to. It's certainly not fair to want Magleby and Mitchell in, but I don't even think it's fair to want Melville in. Well, they hey, look. This is the deal. Schoeninger is not a rugby guy at all in any way, and never has been, never in, and, and never will be. This isn't going to work. But to say that, I'm not saying that those guys aren't responsible for their own livelihoods and their own selves. I'm saying that when you say to people 
who are amateurs, we're going to pay you and then you're professionals, 150 of them. This, this is the same lie that was sold to Scott Johnson, by the way. So let's, let's hey, look, we're going back. Melville said, hey, look, the, the leopards don't change their spots. So this is the same lie that's been sold. So now we're saying that we're going to have 100, possibly 150 players who are going to be sold a bill of goods who are going to basically say, what the F am I doing? And we're going to lose a generation of talent to the game completely. These guys are now there. They're there at this ARC right now, expecting to go become pros. And if they get lied to, they may never go back to be amateurs again. You don't generally don't go from being a pro to going back to being an amateur, even if you get screwed. And that's the problem. And that's where Magleby, who's joined in, and that's where Melville, who's joined in, and that's where they have made a massive, massive mistake. And they do deserve to be culpable for this. Regardless of whether or not you think they should be culpable, they are culpable. They have sold a bill of shit to a bunch of young players who are gullible. And it, this, is like, this is like selling fat pills to guys like you and me on January 3rd. <laughs> we buy, it's like, when I got out of college, when I got out of college with my journalism degree, someone said, I'm going to pay you money to cover the Kansas City Chiefs. Here's how much I'm going to pay you. Here's the work I'm going to ask of you. Worked out for six or eight months. After that, I had to start having to drive to the guy's house, knock on his door to collect my paychecks. Whose fault was it that I was in that situation? The guy selling the snake oil or me who bought it? Me. Yes, he sold it, but I bought it. So any player who is just believing everything that they read on any site that they read it and from anybody who will blow some hot air has to take responsibility for their own decisions. If it's not coming from our governmental authority, our tax authority, our people who are working in the best interests of the amateur and professional and USA rugby game, in the best interests of all their players who have kept them at $100 a day without medical insurance for over a decade, that's who we're believing. Now, these young players don't know any better. They see them as deified people. They see them as people with integrity. They see them as people who haven't lied in the past. You and I know better. I know better than you. And I'm saying they're selling bullshit. And people are going to get burned. We know it. They don't know it. And we're going to lose a generation of people due to incompetence based on the actions that, hey, regardless of if Magleby agrees with it, if he didn't agree with it, he shouldn't have signed on with it. He, he agreed with it. So did Melville. So did Mitchell. And if they didn't buy it, then they shouldn't have bought it. But they did. And they're willing to accept their paycheck. They're willing to tax us. 
they're willing to take our money. And now we got to be buyer beware. No, they're protecting us. Quote, unquote, I am a libertarian. I know they're not protecting us. I know they only protect themselves. I'm not a fool. And and in the end, you know, I, I personally, you know, uh, I don't mind somebody trying something and seeing it fail. But uh, as you said, can we lose a generation of players because it fails and the experience leaves such such a bad taste in the mouth or or hurts people? To the point that they not only don't want to play, they can't because we 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 hurt them. Uh, we don't want that to happen. We what we do want to hap- happen is a little bit more of that good stuff we saw against the Argentina fifteen. Uh, we do want to see some of these players come back from football and play and enjoy themselves. Um, and maybe we want to see a a, a world where. Uh, a rugby player in the United States does get paid to play rugby in the United States. I think it's going to be a tall order and a long shot, and I think we all believe that. Um, rugby Matrix America is brought to you by Eagle Impact Rugby Academy. Don't forget to check out Rugby Matrix International Show on RugbyMatrix.com, and also you can see all the past Rugby Matrix America shows, like 160 of them. And uh, you can also check out Rugby Matrix America and Rugby Matrix International on iTunes. Uh, that's going to do it for us, for the Libertarian, and for the uh, Closet Soccer fan, for Bruce McLean and Pat Clifton. This is Alex Goff thanking you for listening to Rugby Matrix America. <laughs> <laughs>